0: Hi, this is Zoe Routh, and this is the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. And wow, we do we have an amazing guest on the show today. And uh, her name is Promise Felon. She is a Silicon Valley warrior. What the heck does that mean? It means that she started into Silicon Valley as an underdog, as somebody who didn't quite fit the mold, i.e., she wasn't 25 years old, white, and a guy. <laughs> she is an African-American woman who is an absolute powerhouse of a leader and of an entrepreneur. In her brief, because it feels really brief to me looking at her her history, about 10 years or so in Silicon Valley, she learned the ropes really quickly. She learned how to buy, scale, and exit businesses to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. So she is one of the exceptions to the rule when it comes to creating phenomenal businesses and turn around and grow them quickly. Now, She is an investor and she combines her capital investment with coaching to help other underdogs do the same thing. She is remarkable and in this conversation we dive into where she started, what was it that she did both internally and externally that helped propel her upstream, I guess it felt like, in her career. So that is what we have on hand today. If you're wondering about me, hello. I'm a Canadian-Australian. That's the weird kind of accent I've told I've had. And I work with CEOs and their teams on the people stuff in leadership. What we do is we cut the people management issues by 75% and help them build a team they love to lead and be part of. Sounds great, hey? Yes, indeed. And if you think this podcast is great, one of the things that you can do to help us out, to help get the word out and help us keep bringing these amazing interviews to you is to rate and review the podcast. Yeah, just click on the episode underneath this and on whatever device you're using and on whatever platform you're listening to and just do a quick one minute Hey, this was great. I love the energy, the amazement, the intellect, the wit, whatever it is you like about our show. I would love it if you could help us out and do a rate and review. All right. Now, without further ado, let's bring on dun, 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 Promise Vilon. Promise, I'm so excited to speak with you today. Where are you in the world? Because I know you're a big world traveler.
1: I am a world traveler. Um, So I'm a Silicon Valley, I can't say a native, but that's where I've been uh, habitating for uh, the last 15 years. South Lake Tahoe was where I spend most of my time actually, which is up in the mountains. Yeah. So um, when they shipped shelter in place, I found the best place to shelter. (laughs) I've been to Lake Tahoe. It is
0: spectacular. What a beautiful part of the world. So yeah, absolutely. Great place to shelter in place. And uh, I love how you describe um, Silicon Valley as a habitat, because <laughs> it feels a little bit like a habitat from outsiders looking in. It's a completely different universe. Was that your experience, that it was a different kind of world?
1: Yeah, and I, I, I think it's a culture, right? I mean, to, to going to Habitat, you know, it's, I got to Silicon Valley when I think I was, I must have been 22, very early 20s. I'd just come out of business school, did that super young. And you know, of all the places to, for an African-American woman to, you know, raise a bunch of money, start, run, sell companies. It was, you know, both the best place to do it and probably one of the most challenging.
0: Yeah. There's so much of your story that is really important to unpack here. Let's start with that last point you made, you know, that it was Silicon Valley is a great place for an African-American woman to uh, launch, sell, buy, expand, be basically um, an icon in the IT space. What was positive about it and what was challenging about it?
1: Hmm. Um, so what's, what's positive is there are very few places in the world that have so many smart, hardworking people. And I, I've been to lots of places and I've, you know, interacted with lots of business people, but I would say the concentration Zoe is is really fantastic in terms of like highly intelligent, driven, smart, focused people. So you get to work with kind of the best and the brightest. I would say the second thing is, and I've not seen this anywhere else, you know, we have this claim to be, um, a meritocracy, you know, where it's all about what you contribute, which I think some of that is, that's an intention. It's not necessarily true, but what we do have is a culture of mentorship. And so what you'll find in the Silicon Valley is like, if you have a question and you need help answering something or addressing something or finding something, I mean, high level, successful people, well-placed will carve out and make time. So I would say those are, the best parts of silicon valley the most challenging parts are that it is a habitat and certain animals in that habitat are used to flocking running and winning together and so when you are what i call an underdog someone who doesn't look like or act like or come from quote unquote you know the traditional background then the habitat has to adjust which it's not really it's not really used to right so um it's great in some ways. I think it's challenging if you are a woman, a person of color, um, if you didn't go to a great school, LGBTQ. So it's, it doesn't have as many of those creatures in the wild mm.
0: <laughs> to use yeah. the habit of that
1: concept.
0: <laughs> I'm lo- I'm just loving this metaphor. Um, <laughs> yeah, because Silicon Valley, from what I've read about it, is very much a young blokes kind of, young white blokes kind of environment. That's sort of the stereotypical look in terms of who's there, you know, headed up by Mark Zuckerberg as the poster child. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Like sort of a little bit much of that kind of animal in the zoo?
1: Yeah, and um, are Americans allowed to say bloke? Is, is, is... <laughs> Go for it, <laughs> I just did, I'm no. Canadian. <laughs> um, wow, so, so yes, and on that point, what Silicon Valley also has an addiction to is disruption. And so what I've lived into, and one of the reasons why I've been successful in Silicon Valley is I also believe Zoe that um, the Valley wants to get disproportionate returns. And so you can only have one group creating all the wealth or all the opportunity for so long, and then you need new energy, you need new markets. So one of the things that I tell uh, a lot of the underdogs that I mentor is that at some point, you know, you can only have so many scooter companies, you can only have so many Ubers for, you can only have so many of those companies and you have to go outside. Like I've seen um, a tremendous number of AI companies and food delivery and, and all the kind of traditional companies. But I've also seen a new crop of um, companies focused at you know, hair care for um, African-Americans for uh, women's health care and women's reproduction, reproductive health, I've seen more companies begin to crop up that are more underdog oriented, if that makes sense. So I think there is a desire to have more than the, mark, the traditional Mark Zuckerberg, if we use that as an archetype, because those new people represent new market opportunities, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely, it does. And I love that that's a truism and a truth from Silicon Valley. Gives me hope, actually, (laughs) that we're not doomed to repeat the old cycles, you know, where we just get stuck in the status quo. And it's a bit of an irony, really, that you have the status quo that's hungry for uh, disruption. And... um, Is it an irony? Maybe it's a paradox. I'm not sure. (laughs) But anyway, it's a good thing that it's hungry to disrupt itself, which I think is awesome. So, you've just got a new book. Is it out yet or is it coming out? Way of the Growth Warrior.
1: Yeah, The Way of the Growth Warrior. So, it is in, uh, you can pre purchase it now. And I believe if you pre purchase it, you get two copies for one. You know, I wrote it because um, in 2018, Zoe, I I just sold uh, the company I was uh, CEO of, I just sold it to a public company the team that had been the investment bankers on our deal came to me and were like, how does it feel to be one of like five African-American females to have, you know, taken over a company, gone through a turnaround, been the CEO, raised, you know, over X number of millions, I, I think almost 20 million we'd raised for that company and then sold it to a public company. And I was like, I'm one of how many? And they said about five. And I was oh, like, wow. I'm here this year, they were like, no, no, no. Like, historically for a very long time and it, it kind of struck me like wow okay I have pioneered something what is my responsibility and so as I was mapping out my next move I decided I wanted to write a book but I'm not Oprah I'm not you know <laughs> you know uh, Chadwick Boseman my life is you know I grew up in Texas you know live in Silicon Valley so I didn't want to write a memoir I wanted to write something that someone like me could read and then start to take action. Does that make sense? Like I wanted to write something kind of practical. And so the book is a practical exploring of seven skills that I believe everyone needs to be successful in any market. I think people like um, the CEO of Canva, she has these seven skills. Uh, Melanie, I believe that like, you know, anyone who wants to be successful, it doesn't matter where or in what habitat, they need these seven skills from being able to tell a compelling story, know their market, drive aggressive growth, have a clear leadership philosophy, build their business to exit, raise capital. So there's seven skills that I outline. I go through stories about what those look like. Were those all the seven skills you just listed just there? There were five of seven. (laughs) But, you know, it's very specific. And so I think when you're an underdog, like I consider myself an underdog, you think that success in an environment like silicon valley is is magical and it's bestowed upon certain people and i theorize that it's not and it can be boiled down to conditioning and skill sets that are critical for anyone
0: and that's another sign of hope right there right so that you don't have to luck out you don't have to have the magical qualities you don't have to have some, you know, the ins and outs of of different networks behind you, you don't have to have any of that stuff. You can actually work it. You can work those skills. So let's go back to the beginning, right? So you said you grew up in Texas. How does a girl from Texas launch into the IT sector and then take it by storm? (laughs) That just
1: just sounds remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur and became one mostly by necessity. I mean, I'd be curious to hear what, what your story is, but I went to college. I paid for it myself. I started a dog walking, which became a dog running business. And then I realized, wow, you can only do so many of those runs every day. And so you've got to sort of pace meter. And then I realized, oh, okay, when you sell your time for money, that's not that scalable. And so I started building software. I built my first company in college and it wasn't a sexy endeavor. So it was, I just need to pay for life and, and pay for my tuition and pay for my living expenses. And so that was the beginning. Um, I actually sold that company, which funded me going to grad school, um, went to grad school and left Texas, went to California to go to grad school. And my mentor was, um, became an executive in a Silicon Valley company that was just going crazy.
0: Did you seek out a mentor or how did they appear in your
1: world? yeah good question i um i've always sought out mentors and i think it's because i realized early on that i just didn't grow up in a situation where i could lean on my parents for these answers if that makes sense and so i've always really wanted to have people who were being successful and the one thing that i think i i understood very early on and, and maybe you see this as well I was not looking for a mentor who was perfect. I was looking for someone who had like a spark of experience or who had certain skill sets. I wasn't trying to find this person who was flawless and had no imperfections. I was aware that the best and brightest were often quirky or had areas of their life that were unexplored, and unexpressed. I knew I wanted to understand tech. And I found a woman who was a gay woman who took me under her wing and said, hey, you know, you live in LA, to go to grad school, come up to Silicon Valley. And so I've never worked so hard in my life. I did jobs that I wasn't prepared to or qualified to do, but I knew that if I hustled, I could stay at the table. And so that was, that was the beginning of my, most of the beginning of my career was just, you know, an endless hustle of, of staying in the game with the people who were playing it at the, the highest levels.
0: And what does that look like Like sort of on a day-to-day basis when you say I hustle? Does that mean like waking up at five and working till midnight, that kind of thing? Is that what you mean by hustle? Just
1: describe that technically, what that looks like. I mean, I I did that, right? And um, I wouldn't do it now. I, I wouldn't work five till midnight now unless it was something massively important. But I knew that I had a learning curve. And so I wasn't hustling for a job. I was hustling for myself. I was hustling to build those skills inside of me. I also hustled to be self-aware. You know, I journaled every day. I can go back and I can pull out a journal from the day that the stock market crashed at the end of 2000, I have my journals. I have my journals from when I sold my first company, um, my second company in 2008. I have journals from almost every investor meeting. I have that. So I hustled to not only learn, but to be self-aware. And then I, did, I hustled to be at the table. And so if it meant you know talking to 10 times as many investors, I did it. If it meant sneaking into a meeting uh, that I wasn't supposed to be in because I thought I could learn something or meet people, I would do that too. So it really was wanting the outcome more than I was afraid of the cost. Ooh. That's kind of how I define hustle is I wanted it more than you know the cost of getting it.
0: And in terms of afraid of the cost, like the cost was energy outlay and disapproval, I'm guessing. So if you're sneaking into meetings, (laughs) there'd be a bit of furrowed brow, I'm guessing.
1: (laughs) I worked for a guy um, who actually became an advisor and an investor. His name was Ivan Kuhn. And he was a boss that I had at at a company called BEA Systems. And um, I'd taken on a project because I thought it was important that we understood some data. And so... I was a great, I'm great at data, and so I analyzed this data and I presented it to him and like the entire executive team, and I'm all of like 24 or 25. And he asked me one question, and my entire presentation collapsed on the answer to this one question. And he, in front of everyone, he's like, This sucks, and so do you. (laughs) And the rejection, as a woman, I mean, we take rejection very seriously, but I realized I can be crippled by this rejection or I can just dust myself off, do the analysis again and get back in front of the same group of people. And in that split second, I just realized that the only way that I was going to have what I wanted is that it was on the other side of like my perceptions of rejection, of fear, of non-acceptance, of bias, And so I could focus on those things because they're always there. I mean, you're a Canadian in Australia. There's got to be people who look at you and go, what did you say? Every day.
0: (laughs) Every day. Where are you from? I'm like, uh, Canberra.
1: (laughs) Right? (laughs) So I feel that, you know, the system changes through agitation, but it also changes through, you know, some level of undulation, right? Sometimes you... Get inside of it and you change it, and that's been my mode. So, some, you said this is a beautiful quote: systems change through agitation and sometimes through—I miss the word—undulation. Like, undulation. Like, like, you no, know, you, you can you can beat something up or you can massage it into what you want it to be, and I think both are true. And so, if I wanted to reach to the top of any venture capital firm, I could do that within moments, and that's not because. I've beat people up. It comes from respect, understanding, collaboration. It comes from friendship. It comes from you know the things that I've, I've nurtured, and a lot of rejection to get there. You know, it just
0: yeah, it takes processing of that rejection in a healthy way. And I wanted to ask a little bit more about your journaling practice and uh, you hustle to become more self-aware. With your journaling practice, do you have specific frameworks that you go through or is it just a brain dump? What have you learned and how do you apply journaling technique?
1: Great question. So there are kind of three ways in which I look at self-awareness. And so, so every morning I write morning pages. And so my morning pages are just like a two minute process of, you know, for what am I grateful and what's inspired me and what's my intention. And so I do that every day. And it's just two minutes, you get things off your mind, your mind is fresh, and so you're kind of smoothly moving through starting your day. So that's one thing I do. And then the second is when I'm going through like like fundraising or doing a turnaround or any sort of process that is intense, I spend time in the evening between five and 10 minutes recording a voice note on my phone. And... I went through a really challenging uh, fundraising process a few years ago. I went through a company exit. And so I bought a company recently with uh, a group of investors. And so every day I will record what happened. And so it's everything from just had this conversation with this investor. They mentioned X, Y, or Z. And I looked at the situation. I don't quite understand how I'm going to handle it, but it's something I want to come back through. So I'll just record and download And then on the weekend, like let's say Sunday afternoon, if I'm on the treadmill or if I'm walking or running, I'll listen to all of those from the week. And so what that gives me is kind of a sense of like keeping up with what I'm experiencing and learning because we tend to forget a lot when a lot of the detail and the texture. And so I want that information. And so I'll go back and revisit it. And then once a month, um, I, call, I do something called think time where I'll just break out and go somewhere for six hours and I'll ask myself a series of questions. So the questions that I'm asking myself now, we just completed a series of, of, of acquisitions of companies and turnarounds. I'm also mentoring a lot of underdogs. You know, the number one question I, I ask myself is what's changing about leadership? That, that's on my list right now. Second question is how are the capital markets shifting Third question is, is venture capital still the best uh, asset class or is private equity or is or is? And so I'll ask myself these questions and revisit them. Um, But it's three parts, morning pages, two minutes, just downloading. And then second is kind of the end of the day debrief, listen to it as your own kind of podcast. And then third is what I call think time, which is six hours a month sometimes more frequent, where I just ask myself some bigger questions that help me to see that things have come together in a certain way.
0: Do you go somewhere special for that? Starbucks.
1: (laughs) You spent six hours in Starbucks? (laughs) (laughs) I have done. You need a pillow because those chairs are not comfortable. Uh, So before the pandemic, that's where I would go. Now, you know, I'll go to a hotel or I'll go to a room in the house and just lock myself in and just really get that because you need deep time for thinking
0: i love it i i for sure thought you can say i go to this special park with a view of a pond
1: (laughs) starbucks dose of caffeine to get through (laughs) six hours of just contemplation but it's powerful
0: yeah i'm just thinking i want to do that too and I love the question. One of the questions you're asking is what's changing in leadership. So what are your answers coming up? with? I'm, I'm a leadership expert. So I want to know what your perspective is in terms of what's
1: changing leadership. What are you noticing? Can I share what I'm thinking? And of again, course, please. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I mentor a lot of underdogs. And so these are people who are, you know, former military, women, people of color, people over 40, people over 50. So I'm mentoring people who don't look like to use Zuckerberg as an archetype. And so I look at them as kind of the the canaries of leadership. I'm also talking to a lot of the people who fund the private equity firms and the venture capitalists. And so when I look at what they're doing around leadership and what they're looking for in the companies and the funds that they're funding, right? So you're the person writing the check to the venture capital firm who then writes a check to the entrepreneur, right? So if you go up, three levels on that hierarchy. I'm talking to those people a lot. I'm going to oversimplify it. So forgive me. I think leadership is moving from a messianic institutional approach to more of a pilgrimage where it's less about me having all the answers as the CEO or you having them. And it's more about us being on a journey where my job as a leader is to remove obstacles, to find unique competence, to find unique ability, to uh, enlighten what we've learned, to help us as an organization be self-aware. But it's too expensive now for the CEO of a company or for a founder or for anyone to have all the answers. It's impossible because your people have access to a tremendous amount of information a lot of it more than you do. And if they're younger than you, by 5, 10, 15 years, their ability to access and to move smoothly through, again, undulate, is much higher. And so you want them as part of this pilgrimage. But a pilgrimage is different because a pilgrimage is our quest together to reach a certain level of understanding, right? That's the difference versus a Messiah who needs to have all the answers. And so I believe that leadership is migrating from a person or a group with all the answers and all the control to a pilgrimage where we are all responsible and accountable for learning about ourselves, about the world, about our customers, about our products as we move forward. And so I think it's a beautiful thing. I think Gen Z is not going to stand for being told what to do. I think millennials, the millennial population is so empowered with data and information and If you're a leader and you're trying to control information, I've been here, or dictate, you will lose because people don't want to follow. They want to be part of a movement. And that's just, you know, that's my perception. And I think there's an opportunity for all of us in a more pilgrimage-based approach to leading than one that's got a fragile person at the top.
0: Oh, look, I love it. I love that metaphor, that descriptor. I think it's fantastic. And I see the move to the collective as well. It's in some industries. Uh, Not every industry is set up to do that well. I think the IT sector, absolutely, because of the nature of the work. Other businesses that are more traditional, I guess. So I work with construction. In construction, I also work in agribusiness a little bit more difficult to shift into that mode because of the nature of the work. Like they, it takes time and production systems to produce things like you've got to grow a cow before you can eat it. <laughs> it takes some time. You can't just decide Beautiful. innovatively that you, that's going to change. Though you never know. Like there's a lot of plant-based burgers, et cetera, being produced. So I think there's some industries that can spin pretty quickly and others will take a bit of time. And I think your observation about millennials and Gen Z are... We say Gen Z in Canada?
1: <laughs> okay, blokes well, and Gen Z. I'm gonna write those two things down.
0: <laughs> I actually don't know what they say in Australia. I think it's Z. I don't think it's Z, but anyway, that was a distraction. I agree with you that the younger generations do expect different things because of all the things that you described, their access to resources and thinking, etc. And leaders absolutely need to operate from a collective and integrated aspect as opposed to trying to have all the answers and the leaders that struggle are the ones that are trying to be the hero leader with all the answers and that's just exhausting and doomed to fail wow okay i love all these processes that you've gone and it's very structured that has evolved over time or did you always always start out with that like morning piece and then the voice recording and then the monthly thing or is that have you been doing that for a long time or is that more recent
1: no i i I would say seven seven plus years And it was because I was losing the texture, you know what I mean? Like I would, someone would say, well, so how did you do this or that? And I'd realize, wow, I don't have grasp of those details. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to have grasp. And so I feel that I met Tony Robbins, this is so... Tell me if we're getting too off here. No, go for it. You met Tony
0: Robbins already. I desperately want to know what this conversation had happened.
1: I met him and then I traveled with him and uh, about 50 other top business leaders globally. And we went to Dubai, we went to Abu Dhabi, we went all over the world, south of France, and we would meet with other people running massive, massive businesses. And one of the things that they all have most of them is a journaling technique. And so this is in 2018 that I started traveling with Tony and his team, but I realized that there's a reason why is because you're always learning, but you're not always assimilating, right? You're always learning, you're always like gathering more, but the people who move the fastest, they assimilate really well. And I would watch Tony Robbins, who's like a billionaire, like sit with, I remember him sitting with um, Kevin Hart at his house and we're all in this audience and he is taking copious notes of everything Kevin is saying. And I thought, wow, you're never, someone is always there to teach you. And the the challenge is, sometimes we ha- we're not ready to receive whatever that lesson is. And so the act of Journaling not only programs stuff into your brain, but it also, if you go back and revisit, it's a way to, to assimilate that information. And what it requires then, going back to leadership, is when I first started running companies, Zoe, I was so use a bad word so fucking unproductive with my time. <laughs> I used worked all day. I just like worked all day. And what I realized is there was no time for reflection. There was no time for like deep, deep connection with people where you like really get in like, what is this person's unique ability and how do I help them uncover it? I just worked. And I think, again, going back to the pilgrimage, if you see yourself as not the Messiah, but as more of a pilgrim, then you you are much more kind to yourself and you're much more focused on your own learning and assimilation process. And then how does that get Absorbed by the rest of the people around you. And I think one of the things I'm noticing in all in all our companies is that Friday at 2 o'clock, it's a ghost town in every single company that we own or run. And the old workaholic in me is like, what are we doing? <laughs> but people are spending time with their families. And that again is the opportunity for assimilation. I think in America, in the valley, Silicon Valley, we work way too many hours. I think the expectations of a 40, 60-hour work week don't allow for assimilation. And so I believe that leadership is going to look more feminine, more brown, more underdog. I believe it's going to move from a poor white guy with all the answers, you know, And more to a collective that makes decisions together in every industry. And where time is more immersive. And we allow ourselves to have deep dialogue. And we're not cramming a bunch of activity in the 60 hours. And not really feeding our souls what it needs. Which is we all want growth. We're doing this because we're here for This is earth school you know like we're here to learn some stuff and if we're just doing the whole time we miss the beauty of you know of really enjoying and getting the sweetness of of this life
0: that was just beautiful um i love that yeah the fact that we make time for assimilation growth connection and all aspects of life and not just churning over and about making the, the big bucks, which is really wonderful message to hear from somebody who is making the big bucks and hustling so hard in business, like from an outsider's point of view, what can be seen from the outside in that whole Silicon Valley IT sector is, is that it's all about driving the revenue up for shareholders and not necessarily for stakeholders. Stakeholders being employees, being customers, being community, being the broader planet. So we do see sort of outliers of that or outreaches to something different, which is things like the B plan or plan B or the B plan, (laughs) I can never remember which way it goes around, Richard Branson's (laughs) community about business for the planet and people. Yes. and so there is, there is a kind of leading edge into that. And I'm curious to see how long it's going to take before the rest of the world or the rest of the bulk of businesses catch up to that. So it's a cultural change process that is happening. And the leading edge is certainly there. What's your expectation? Like you said, the future of, the, of leadership is brown and female and underdog. How long do you think it's going to be before that becomes the status quo,
1: and then we're looking for a new disruptive edge? It's a great question. So going back to the, I want to hit on something. Looking at Silicon Valley and looking at these successful business people from Forbes Magazine and from Inc. and from Crunchbase would be like studying celebrities based on their Instagram profiles. It's that accurate, right? Like it's that accurate. I got divorced in 2017, and I, you know, worked 100 hours a week. And I did that. And so the reality is Silicon Valley has a lot of, um, and again, I'm not picking on, these are my people. We have a lot of divorces. We have a lot of unhealthy habits. We have a lot of suicides. We have a lot of things that are the direct output and outcome of a way of life and a certain set of expectations. And so I would say, I'm never gonna look at someone's life from what they show on Facebook or Insta, right? Because it's not real. And the reality is, I think we all want happiness. We all wanna feel good. And so if you look at the people who are the most balanced and the most successful, they have a more holistic view on their lives, right? And they are taking that Friday afternoon to just connect with their kids. Or if COVID has taught us nothing, is that we really value connection right? Like if it's taught us nothing, and you talked about it earlier, like visiting your family in Canada, go one more year without seeing them and see what happens. Like it robs you of that texture. And so I don't know how long it's going to take Zoe, but I do know that what we've all been through as a global economy is accelerating our desire to get to balance. Because we've seen the cost, you've seen the cost, everyone has seen it. Everyone, we're all a little bit crazy right now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or am yeah. I speaking to myself? <laughs> yeah,
0: uh, certainly here, you know, um, Melbourne has had a second lockdown, like a pretty strict one with curfews and pretty bad restrictions. And the mental and emotional toll that it's taking, let alone the business toll is enormous. So yeah, we all want to get greater connection, greater interaction. I can't wait for concerts to happen again, where you have like a thriving mass of bodies bumping into each other
1: <laughs> safely. Safely, <laughs> <laughs> right with your mask on. Don't yeah. you just want to get yeah. hugged, you know? And yeah. it, it's, it's interesting. So we don't realize it, but we are all changing right now.
0: Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I just want to shake hands and hug and (laughs) do all that kind of stuff. Um, We'll get back to that, and we will get back to something better, I reckon, as a result of that. So part of me at the beginning of the pandemic was very Pollyanna. You know, this is an opportunity to change the world, and now that we can see that we're all connected, we can move to that place where we look after each other collectively. And then I was wrong. (laughs) Where everybody devolved into self-protection mode and went into survival mode and it touched our more primal buttons as opposed to our more elevated ones. And yet I'm still, now I'm sort of shifting back going, no, there's still an opportunity to get to that leading edge place again. I think um, there's enough people having conversations like this one and listening to these kinds of ideas that willingness to test and trial it moving forward. So let's finish
1: with talking about your book,
0: because <laughs> I don't want to leave that off the table. So tell me about the seven skills to help anybody achieve anything.
1: Yeah, they, they come from uh, from my own experience. And so you won't believe it, we started out with 20 and <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I just, I wanted it to be easy. And so, um, you know, I had a team and, and we just basically said, okay, what are the seven skills? and you know, my favorite one is, you know, the art of building anti-fragile relationships. That's and number one. Oh my that's goodness. my favorite one. That's my favorite one. Okay. Uh, because when I look back on my successes and the successes of people that I respect and love, there's always a relationship there that was anti-fragile that grew as a result of stress and pressure. And so um, I believe that these seven skills, if implemented, would dramatically impact anyone's p- potential success because I think we tend to believe that what we've done will work for what we want to do. And these seven skills, I believe, set up an entrepreneur to thrive in uncertain times, but also thrive at any time. So being able to tell a story effectively having relationships where you can screw up and you can come back and recover, having a leadership philosophy. And so what that means is, when you hire an employee, you don't onboard them, you also tell them, hey, these are my strengths as as a leader. Here are the areas I'm working on. Here are the things I care about. Here's what success looks like. Being able to understand how markets work. I know one of the things I find when I talk to entrepreneurs is they say, this is a massive market. And I say, yes. It could be a massive, slow-moving market. Do you want to enter that market or do you want to enter a market that is maybe smaller in a niche but moves faster and has more aptitude for disruption? Um, So it's really about the skills that you need to become successful and to scale your business, to raise money, to sell your company. A lot of people I know build companies and don't know how to exit them. I've had multiple exits. And so when you're building a company, you're creating all the hygiene, you're creating all the expectations that if at some point you want to exit or someone wants to buy you, you're in a position to. Quick story, my last company, we realized the market was changing and my investors said we should look at our exit options. And so we hired a banker but I had all the relationships already with people who'd be potential buyers. And the, the company that bought us was our biggest competitor. But you know what? I talked to that CEO when, we were, when I was running the company. I talked to him every quarter. I would call him and just say, hey, dude, here's what I'm learning. What are you, how are you guys doing? And the first call, he was like, why is my competitor calling me? <laughs> but if it's a good market, there should be enough room for two companies. And so built to exit is one of the skills, which is you know your competitors, you talk to investment bankers, you keep your ear to the market, you know the people who might buy you and who you might buy, but you're never building a business with this hundred year in perpetuity mindset with knowing that you are going to at some point wanna buy or sell or have a majority exit. And so one of the skills that we go into is how do you build a company with the expectation and the readiness that at some point you might sell it. I go into fundraising in deep, deep detail. It's probably one of our largest chapters. And so I've written this book as a tool for people who don't have all these skills naturally, which is most of us, but I'm writing it as someone who is not your traditional Silicon Valley success story. So I feel that it's a little bit more credible since it's the skills that I've, I've used to get to here.
0: And where can people find
1: the book? Um, It's available on, it'll be available on Amazon, uh, or you can go to thegrowthwarrior.com and you can get uh, your copy there. That's
0: great. Fantastic. Growthwarrior.com. I am definitely going to hook myself up with a couple of copies of your fabulous book. Awesome. (laughs) Promise. This has been so delightful. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It went into great little avenues that I've been happy to explore. And I've learned so much. I'm excited about the monthly think time. (laughs) It's like, okay, I got to do that. I'm going to have a think about what questions I'll ask myself during that time. Is there any last message you have for listeners?
1: Yeah, um, I, I think, you know, you've, you've done a great job of creating this platform. And, um, you know, one of our jobs as leaders is to continue to grow. And so this book should be on your shelf, right? As a resource. And so I'm just hopeful that people um, enjoy it and read it and get it. And I'm open to feedback because, uh, you know, we're building courses and other things to support entrepreneurs. So if there are questions that come up, Um, that people have, please, you know, drop me an email um, at The Growth Warrior.
0: Oh, that's fabulous. Promise thank you so much. It's been just fantastic talking with you.
1: Same here. Awesome. Thanks Zoe. Appreciate your time.
0: I totally love this interview. I thought Promise was amazing. (laughs) We really resonated on so many different levels and I love her story and her energy. And after we ended the recording, we had a brief chat about her experience with Tony Robbins, and I asked her, what was he like? And she said that he's incredibly emotional, which is not something that she's used to. But one of the things that struck her was in this group that she was part of for a year, these high performers, I guess, intimate circle of Tony Robbins, all of them, all of them had a practice of taking notes, of doing reflection, of doing journaling practice. And so she figured, They do it, it's got to be a good thing. It's got to be integral to their success. And the key behind the journaling or the capturing and the reflection is that they all felt that they had something to learn from each other and from other people. So they're constantly wanting to stretch the boundaries, the limits, the experience of their knowledge. And so that's why they took copious notes whenever they were having conversations with others or they recommended a book and so on. So it's this idea of capturing and synthesizing what they came across. And I love that. I think that's really powerful and something that I'm completely going to adopt. I am totally going to pick up and run with some of her journaling techniques as well. I already have a strong journaling practice, but the idea of having a monthly six-hour meeting to reflect on what's happened and getting granular with the day-to-day so that you can recall what are the little pieces, the atomized aspects of your success, hey, I'm down with that. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please click a rate and a review. That would be fantastic. Thank you so much. In the meantime, hey, we're coming up to the end of 2020. I mean, a lot of us are happy that the year is over. There's a lot to celebrate in coming to the end of the year. Find something delicious and wonderful that's happened for you. And with that, find the kernels of what's amazing in the year to come. In the meantime, live well, lead well.